basically what we've done over the past few weeks is we're, we're just wrapping it up with review. And I want to read the final few verses of this, of this last chapter to you and then tell you once again the shape of what we're doing these last couple of weeks so that your mind is wrapped around where we are. One of the things that we really strive for here in our church is clarity. Clarity is a big deal. And by that I mean we want you to understand this stuff. I think sometimes you come to the Bible and you think, Ooh, this is a really ancient document, and it's really big, and I don't really understand it. But we want to we be clear with you all the time as we teach God's Word. Um, the, the Bible, when you really take time to come to it, it's not that hard. There are some, some hard passages, of course, from time to time. But, but it's really not that hard, and we want to make it as clear as possible to you. And one of the main things we want to do to you is we, or for you as we teach is help you go home and be able to read it yourself and love it and, and ingest it and meditate on it. So I want to be clear today and, and what we're trying to do as we wrap up so that your mind is engaged as we walk away from it. Because I want Romans to, to help form the fabric of your thinking for forever. I want you to be able to look at life through the filter of Romans. I want you to be able to look at your marriages and your children and your community and your worship of the Almighty through the book of Romans. It's critical. So we're, we want to be careful as we walk away to be really clear as to how this book is really, really relevant for you. So let's read the last few verses. I want to set a little bit of context for you. And we'll talk about where we're going to go today. Paul says here in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Now to him, speaking of God the Father, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I have said to you that as Paul wraps up this letter, this is the only letter of Paul's and Paul wrote a lot of our New Testament. This is the only letter in which Paul ends with a doxology or a, a hymn of praise. And what he's doing here is he's saying, all the things that I've said in the prior 15 plus chapters are for God's glory. So let, let's ground ourselves for just a moment in some, some grand reality context. This world... And everything you see in it was made by God for His glory. Now at the outset, if, if you don't have a taste for that, that, that may seem like, like God's this megalomaniac up in heaven and, and all He wants to do is, is sort of like peer over the battlements of heaven and just hope against hope that all these people that He has made will praise Him and love Him. But if you think about God through that lens, you have the wrong view of God. Because what you're doing is you're thinking about God by projecting humanity back upon Him. It has been said before, and we've said it here, that in the beginning God created man in His own image. That ever since, we've been returning the favor. God is not like us. God is in heaven and he made all things for his glory, and if he had not, he would not be worth worshiping. And by that we are saying that he is the grand reality of all. And if he fails to value the highest good, which, by the way, is himself, then he fails to be a God worth worshiping. 
So God made the world to reflect His glory so that He would be pleased with it. We know, of course, that the fall marred all of that. But God made the world to be just like it is. Now, that does not make God responsible for sin. We have to be very careful with our theology, but it does make God the designer of all that is, and He knew the way the world would be. It was not, it was not arbitrary. It was not happenstance. It was not an accident. And what Paul is saying is, God gave the gospel, which is what this whole letter is about. This gospel is about the good news that sinful people can be rescued. Sinful people can once again be at peace with God. That's what this letter is about. What Paul is saying is, this God who gave the gospel, this God who made all things for His glory, even giving the gospel to rescue this world for His glory, this God deserves glory from us. That's what Paul is saying here in these final few verses. We have taken this final verse, especially verse 27, to say that to the only wise God should be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, we took our time through Romans chapters 1 through 11, where Paul talks about the promises of God. So we talked about the fact that we glorify God as we rest in His grace. In reality, that's, that's the big sort of heading for all of Romans chapters 1 through 11. That we glorify God as we rest in His grace. Primarily, as you work through those first 11 chapters, there's not a lot of mandates. There's very little said about what we should do. Now, there's a lot of implications for how we should live, no doubt. But primarily what you find as you work through those first 11 chapters is what Paul tends to do in his letters. And that is, before he gets to the parts where he says what we should do, he tells us who we are. Paul does not run away from the fact that we are sinful people. But likewise, he tells us that because of Christ, we have hope. So if it's true that Paul ends this letter by saying that everything that he has said in the prior 15 plus chapters is for God's glory or so that we would glorify God, how do we glorify God when it's all just a bunch of promises? Well, we rest in these promises. But then as you come to chapters 12 through 16, you find that we glorify God as we share his grace. So we, we rest in His grace, verses, or chapters 1 through 11. But chapters 12 through 16, we glorify God as we share His grace. So you can look at it this way. Chapters 1 through 11, if you're thinking about Romans being a grid for your life, teach us that we should rest in the gospel every day. So that's vertical love. Vertically, God loves us here on earth by, by bringing His Son to us. Jesus Christ incarnated, took on flesh. He incarnated grace. He became one of us so that we could once again have hope. He took our punishment so that we could find hope. That's vertical grace. But the latter portion of this book is what we might call horizontal grace. The vertical grace comes down to give us hope that we might share it with the world, that they might have hope as well. So, so vertically we are loved so that we might horizontally love. That's what the last really few chapters of this letter are about. So I want to go back through the promises that we found in the first portion of the book, if, especially if you weren't here, but let's rehearse them once again because they give context to what we're going to say today. First of all, we're going to go through these fast. Our treason has been forgiven. The first promise we find in the beginning of this letter is that our treason has been forgiven. 
There's massive hope in that promise. Secondly, our pardon came through scandalous grace. That is to say, the Son of God, perfection, took His sin upon us. That's scandalous. And by that scandalous grace, pardon came to us. Thirdly, our incessant pursuit to establish our identity need no longer continue. Paul makes that very clear in chapter 5, that Jesus Christ is our present righteousness. And whether you like to admit it or not, almost every day you are running a rat race, trying to prove to God and to other people around you that you are righteous. But the Scriptures teach us that the Gospel not only is relevant for our initial righteousness, that is to say that we have a just standing before God in that sort of celestial court of law, but that every day we rest, or at least we should rest, we can rest in the righteousness of Christ to bring that incessant pursuit, that exhausting pursuit to establish our own identity. It brings it to an end. Fourthly, we have been freed from sin's power. This is massively encouraging for us. One of the things that I say to my children as I watch them sin is not just stop sinning. That's all we ever say to our kids. It's probably because that's what we believe about our own sin. The hope that I have for my own continuing treason, if I can put it that way, is that I don't have to do it. Now, I still do it from time to time, but I don't have to. I can resist it. So I can say to my kids, you don't, you don't have to sin. Not only should you stop doing what you're doing, but if Christ is in you, you don't have to do these things anymore. That, that's massively hopeful. Fifthly, we glorify God as we rest in His grace and we rest in the hope that we are no longer orphans. We'll talk about this more next week because as I, as I hope and the elders hope that our church has moved toward consistent, deep orphan care, that this is rooted in the gospel. Why do we care for orphans? Because we were orphans and God came after us and we're no longer orphans. We are loved by a father who doesn't run away from us when we sin because he's not surprised. We're his kids. He loves us deeply. The sixth thing, our pain and frustration has a purpose and an end. The suffering that we are undergoing, perhaps the very suffering under which you are you're laboring today, the pain of the past, the pain of today. If you are God's child, if you love God, there is, there's a purpose behind this that gives us hope that that it's not arbitrary. God's not just punishing us because He gets glee out of it. But, but even the pain, perhaps we could say especially the pain, we believe intensely by faith there's a purpose behind it. The seventh thing, we will never be alone. I've said to you many times, and maybe you don't believe it, but I've been doing this long enough to believe that it's absolutely true, even if you tell yourself it's not, that most people are really lonely. You can have the best marriage, you can have super great relationships with your kids. You can have really great friends who are slick and you all get together and wear gap clothes and grill out. Right? Like you manufacture like community on your deck. And that's great. You should do that. But really deep down, there is an ache within most of us for relationship. And I think there's a, I think there's a purpose behind that. I, I think it's spirit-fueled. But only the gospel reminds us that there actually is hope that we will never be alone. And then lastly, the last, sort of the last chapters of that section, chapters, nine through, or chapters 1 through 11, 
God's plans are breathtaking and unbreakable. Those three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, are, are really tough theologically. That is kind of a hard section of Scripture, admittedly. But what you find at the end of that tough section after you kind of labored through it and thought about its relevance for your life, and I would say to you it's very relevant, is that God's plans, though mysterious, though difficult, though mind-boggling, that they're breathtaking and unbreakable. So there's eight promises in the first 11 chapters. And there's more, but those are kind of the pillars. They're kind of the highlights. They're the ones that, that you notice most, most grandly, if I can say that. And so the way that we glorify God as we look back at chapters 1 through 11, because that's what Paul's reminding us of here at the end of the letter, that everything he's written is for God's glory. The way that we glorify God through chapters 1 through 11 is by resting in those promises. So I want to encourage you with those today. If you need them, I can email them to you because maybe you should put them up somewhere. Maybe you should put them over your sink in your kitchen or, or next to your laptop or on your nightstand or by your bathroom sink, and just, just marinate and rest in those promises every single day. So we glorify God, chapters 1 through 11, as we rest in His grace. But, but now we come to the end, and, and, and here's where we are today. We've been loved vertically, chapters 1 through 11, so that we might love horizontally. And so we glorify God as we rest in His grace vertically, and then now horizontally we glorify God as we share His grace. So He has freely volitionally, lovingly, without reserve, pursued us in grace. He came after us. It's, it's active. And the way that we glorify Him back most days is by reflecting that grace horizontally. So we become like this little collection of mobile mirrors. And the sun is in the sky... And we're moving and reflecting His grace like mobile mirrors. Maybe it's a silly illustration, but hopefully it sticks with you. We're like mobile mirrors reflecting Him. So His glory is the sum of His perfections. And that's all of His attributes. Everything about God is glorious. That means He's great. God is glorious. God is great in all of His attributes. We glorify Him by reflecting those attributes. Now certainly we don't do it perfectly. Were you as faithful as you should have been this week? Were you as kind as you should have been this week? No, because you're unfaithful, just like me. You're selfish. You're petty. But, but by and large, over time, we are, we are learning to glorify Him, to reflect Him like mobile mirrors at work. And I call it mobile because wherever you go, you should be doing this. In your neighborhood, at work, at school, in the home. You're, you're, taking, you're taking God with you wherever you go, and you're reflecting Him to the world around you. So, he vertically pursues us by grace that we might just as incessantly pursue other people and reflect His grace outward, all around us. So we glorify God as we, as we share His grace. So how do we do this? You can't grace someone. That's not a verb, right? But we can be gracious. We can share grace perhaps to be really simple, yet really biblical, we best share grace when we love. That's going to be my contention for you today as we move through these final few chapters and just review them. My contention for you today is that the best way to share God's grace is to love. Most of us can get our heads around that. Not that we're necessarily always very good at it, 
but most of you can get your heads around that. I want to, I want to really simplify theology today. God has loved us, let's love other people, okay? So this is a pervasive biblical theme, and it's rooted in the very nature of God. God is love, the scriptures tell us. God is love. So this is a pervasive biblical theme that God is love, and therefore he wants his redeemed, his rescued creation to love outwardly. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 17. We're going to focus especially on verses 20 to 26. This is what is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. In chapter 18, he's going to be arrested and therefore taken to Calvary and crucified. But before he goes there, he has this private time alone with the Father where he prays. Seemingly, the disciples would have heard him. Therefore, John was able to record these words. We find these words nowhere else but in John's gospel. It may be because John was part of the very inner circle near Jesus and and was able to be an audience to this and by the grace of the Spirit has been recorded for us for our good. So, So Jesus is praying certain things here. One of his great passions is that God would glorify him, Jesus, through his crucifixion. That is to say that that Jesus is glorious inherently. By his very nature, Jesus is glorious. From, From before the foundation of the world, he existed eternally in glory. But Christ is saying here in this prayer, glorify me through my crucifixion. It seems scandalous that that's how Jesus sought glory here, but that's what he's praying for. And then he starts praying for his people. It's interesting that in the midst of his suffering, he's praying for other people. Then he says this in verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only. That is to say, the, the current disciples around him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Notice this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice this. God's vertical love, he incessantly, volitionally, relentlessly pursued us, is to be in us. It's it's to form the very fabric of our identity, and we're to share it. We're to reflect it. Let's turn, please, to 1 John chapter 3. What I'm doing here is I'm trying to to show you that this theme actually, actually is pervasive in all of the Scriptures. It's not just something that Paul arbitrarily talks about in Romans, but, but really it's all over the place as you read your Bibles carefully. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, <clears throat> John is talking in this letter about the markers of, of true faith. We are to believe in Christ as our only source of salvation, We are to live righteously, and we are to love the brethren. It's kind of a basic way of reading 1 John. This third theme that we are to love the brethren shows up all over the place in the letter. Paul or John keeps circling around back to it, and he says it here in chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning, John says. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Notice what happened when sin came in the world. Not only did our love for God get broken, but our love for one another got broken. It didn't take long. It's interesting, isn't it? If the vertical love is broken, the horizontal love naturally will follow. But John's saying here that we shouldn't be like that. And he asks this question, why did he murder him, his own brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So how do you know that the vertical has been restored? Because the horizontal gets restored. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And turn, please, to chapter 4. We won't read all these verses, but notice some of the highlights. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, a wrath-bearer for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How do you know the vertical is restored? Because the horizontal gets restored too. You're familiar with this passage in Matthew chapter 22 when the Pharisees are questioning Jesus, trying to trip him up in his understanding of the law. They say to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, to love Yahweh with all you've got. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says in John chapter 13 to his disciples on the night of his betrayal and arrest, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's mandating that they love horizontally. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says the same thing. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans chapter 13, as James read to us a bit ago, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you might hear somebody say from time to time, we are no longer under law, we are under grace. I think generally when people say that, they don't really know what they're saying. Now if they mean by that that God does not accept them, God does... God does not con- condemn them. God, God does not acquit them, depending on which angle at which you're looking at it, based upon their own righteousness. That is to say that if we keep the law, somehow God will you know, accept us because we've offered up enough good gifts. If you've been a Christian long enough, especially Protestant Christian, you understand that you don't have enough good works to offer Him because even one sin, and we have billions, literally, we have billions, even one sin would condemn us. We don't have enough to offer him to be pleased with us. So so if you mean by 
we are no, one, no longer under law but under grace. If you mean by that that we cannot be pardoned by, by doing good works, you're right. But if you mean by that that it doesn't matter how we live, you're wrong. In fact, in the letter that is perhaps most pervasively gospel-centered or most, most pervasively gospel-outpouring, proclaiming to us the, the various intricacies of the gospel, it's Romans. In Romans, it's said that we are to keep the law. Not for the sake of being pardoned, but for the sake of God's glory. And how do we do that according to Paul and John and others? We are, we are to love. So let me be very clear here. If you're to ask yourself a series of two questions, very simply, and everything is run through those two questions, you can pretty much know at any point that you're not sinning and you are a mobile mirror reflecting God's glory. Here are the two questions. Does this decision show my love for God? And does this decision show my love for people? If you can answer affirmatively to both, you can pretty much know that you're not sinning and you're making the right choice. In fact, I think we could take it a step further and intensify it. Maybe here's two better questions. How can I best love God in this particular decision? And how can I best love people around me with this decision? This is the best way, the best grid, the best two questions to determine whether or not you are glorifying God. These are the best two questions to ask yourselves as you're thinking about what does God want for my life? If you ask yourselves those two questions at any given time, you can pretty much know that God's pleased with your decisions. But how do we love? What's it look like? Well, I think chapters 12 to 16 show us what it looks like. The first thing I would say is that we are to love humbly. So the moral section of this letter is chapters 12 to 16. Chapters 1 through 11 is all about what God has done for us. The moral section, how we're to respond, chapters 12 to 16, is really just a call to love. To love God. To love each other. This was impossible before we were transformed by the gospel, but God transforms us by His grace and then enables us to display His grace. And therefore, Paul is able to call us to these graces in chapters 12 to 16. And the first way we do this, I think, is by, by loving humbly. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And we're just going to hit these briefly because we've already covered them in depth as we've moved through the letter. You can go back and look at your notes or listen to those sermons, but I just want to hit the highlights. In chapters 12, verses 3 through 8, I think we could summarize those verses by saying that we are to love humbly. Paul says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Why does Paul start there? If we can summarize chapters 12 through 16 by saying that they are a call to love, why does he start with humility? Because we are inherently, deep down to the very core of our being, prideful people. Even those of us who know it and try to, to, to like stand against it and prove that we're not, usually we're just proving that we are. One of my favorite current pastor theologians says that humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Have you reached that state? Have you reached that state of Protestant Christian enlightenment where you never even think about yourself? I doubt it. There's this current term that's being coined today, which I think is actually relatively 
uh, picturesque. It's called humble bragging. Do you guys, you guys know what this is? Uh, humble bragging is acting humble or, or acting humbly, but really what you're doing is just pointing to how great you are. Here's an example of that. Um, your, your, your spouse will say to you, I'm really, I'm really thankful for, for characteristic X in you. Maybe that characteristic is you're funny or you're, you're faithful or you're a good dad or whatever. Uh, and this happens like with friends too. So your friend will say to you, um, thank you so much for teaching my kids in kids' church. They're learning so much. So here's how you humble brag. Well, you know, I, it's just good material. And, and your kids are so great, and I'm not that good. You see, what, you, what you've just done is you're, you're wanting that person to say more. You're wanting the affirmer to go further because you want to be loved upon. Now, that's natural. We want to be loved upon. But, but we humble brag all the time. We've become, we've become very adept. We're very skilled at making people think we're not prideful when, in fact, we are. Do you ever walk away from a conversation and evaluate the course of that conversation and think to yourself, boy, I wonder if I came across pridefully. I do this sometimes. I'll walk away from a conversation, because I'm really prideful. I'll walk away from a conversation, and I'll think to myself, oh boy, I was really prideful, but I wonder if I fooled them. And I've prayed this too many times to my shame. Father, if I was, if I was prideful, I pray that they won't remember it. Because I don't want people to think of me that way, which is pride. It's twisted, it's pervasive, and it's always there. But Paul starts there because pride ruins horizontal love. It just breaks it apart. Why do divisions come? Why is there schism? Why do relationships get broken? Why do people fail to be loved the way that they should be loved horizontally? Why are we not reciprocating love? Why are we discontent a lot of the time in our relationships? Why? Why do churches fall apart? Why do we fight? Why? Because we're prideful. That's why Paul starts there. What should our love look like? It should look like God's love. Look what Jesus did. Jesus set aside his obvious glory for a time to love us humbly. So how should you love? You should love humbly, relentlessly. Secondly, we should love sacrificially. Really all of chapters 14, or the beginning of chapter 15 and all of chapter 14 is about loving sacrificially. It's about giving up your rights. We took a lot of time through chapters 14 and 15 to discuss how we do that. And, and basically in that section, Paul's saying that, that you have liberty in Christ, but, but don't flaunt that liberty and don't use your liberty ever that, in a way that's going to hurt your brother or sister. Be very careful about that. Yes, you're free in Christ, but don't ever let your freedom hurt your brother or sister. In fact, if your freedom might hurt your brother or sister, give it up and love. That's hard. Because we clamor for freedom. We clamor for autonomy and latitude. We want to live our own way. We want to be our own people. What Paul argues for in that section is, yeah, you're free. You have liberty. But the best way you can love is to give up your liberty. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that the vertical example for us? The foundation of our love? Didn't he give up his rights for us? Is it hard to do? You bet it's hard to do. That's why it's so hard to be a spouse. You think about that? That's why it's so hard to be a parent. That's why it's so hard to be a friend. Because you're always giving up your rights. That's really, really hard. 
We see this in a more encapsulated form in chapter 12. Notice in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, we're giving big summaries here of these sections, but I think basically what Paul is saying here is not only love humbly, but love sacrificially. Before the foundation of the world, I want you just to think about this for a minute. Before the foundation of the world, before anything here was ever made or messed up. This is is deep theology, but you need to get this, okay? Before anything was made, the Trinity had a discussion. I don't know if it was out loud, but somehow they they communicated to each other. And here's here's their basic line of communication. Let's make a world in which there'll be these rational beings that we'll make in our image. But let's allow them to choose whether or not they worship us. We know they won't. So let's still make that world anyway, just like we designed it, just like we're thinking about it. Let's make that world. But it's going to cost us something, and, and let's do it anyway. That was the inter-Trinitarian discussion. And then they went ahead and did it. And then finally, it came time for the Son of God to, to, to keep his end of the bargain. And he comes down, and he takes on flesh, and he gives up his very life to rescue us. The inter-Trinitarian discussion became the cross. We're rescued by God's grace, and, and that was sacrifice. The very, the very blueprint of this world is permeated by sacrificial love. You ever think about that? The very blueprint of this world, our story, redemptive story, is permeated with sacrificial grace. That's why it's so hard to love people around you. Because inherently, God's love is sacrificial. That's hard. But that's the nature of the horizontal love that we are to display. Thirdly, um, we glorify God as we love difficult people. Look in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this is so countercultural. if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. We glorify God as we share His grace, and we do this by loving humbly, sacrificially, and we do this by loving difficult people. It's not that hard to love people who make much of you. It's not that hard to love people who think you're awesome. It's hard to love people who think you stink. It's hard to love people who notice all your flaws. It's hard to love people who abuse you, It's hard to love people who curse you and slander you and turn their backs on you. Those kinds of people are hard to love. But I think God in His grace always gives us a few of those people, doesn't He? 
because he reminds us that that's who we were, and that's who we often are. You know, one of the reasons that we have a difficult time loving difficult people is because we forget what we're really like. We, we have this higher estimation of our ability to be righteous than we really should. And ultimately, what we end up doing is we hold people to a higher standard than God holds us. You see, in God's grace, He loves rebellious people, despite their rebellion, in light of their rebellion. In fact, if you know what it's like to love your children whenever they really do something terrible, sometimes you love them more intensely while they're sinning. It's, it's kind of an odd thing, but you hurt for them while, they're, while they sin because you know there's something better for them. I think that's how God is. God had pity on us. But it was, it was a pity that met with us. It was a pity that came to us and ran to us. It's hard to love difficult people because what we want to do inherently is run away from them. But what did God do with difficult people, to be just sort of simple for a moment? He ran to them. Isn't that what God did in the garden? The first sin happens. God does not get all passive-aggressive and give them the cold shoulder for a couple millennia. He comes to them immediately. He runs to them. He seeks them out. And that's what He's been doing ever since. So biblical grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. His presence. He gives us His presence when we don't deserve it. We deserve His wrath. We deserve vaporization. But He comes to us in love. He came to the first prodigal parents and He comes to us and He shows us that He loves difficult people and therefore we are to run toward the difficult people. So vertically, God loves the unlovely and we are to horizontally love the unlovely. Because guess what? You're unlovely. And in our narcissistic culture in which we live today in the West, it's hard to be reminded of that. We wear this veneer of goodness, of worthiness all the time. And our social media helps foster this. Our, our, our earning potential here in suburban America fosters this. We, we can cover things up with nice clothing and, and nice cosmetics and, and nice vacations and great stories and perfect kids and bumper stickers that talk about how great our nuclear family unit is. We can cover it up as much as we want, but we are unlovely. That's grace that God showed us when he loved the unlovely and therefore we are to love the unlovely. Fourthly, we glorify God as we share his grace missionally. Um, I skipped one, I'm sorry. We are to... to, to do this by loving secular authorities. That's what chapter 13 is about. Now, I, I struggled here in, in writing it this way because Paul doesn't really say here in verses 1 through 7 that we are to love secular authorities. But I think in, in sort of essence of what he's saying in this broader section, the last few chapters of this letter, he's telling us at least to appreciate secular authorities. And in a way, that shows love. Paul's argument here in these verses is that we are to respect secular authorities. God gave them as a gift. They, they wield the sword, according to Paul. That is, they, they bring justice upon wrongdoers. And therefore, insofar as they are not anti-God, we can respect government. In fact, even have a kind of love for them. 
That's why Paul can say later in 1 Timothy that he wants people like us to pray for those in authority. It's hard to do that when you really disagree. There's a lot of rancor that grows up in the conservative church against government, perhaps rightly so to a degree, but one of the things that we've always resisted here in our church is becoming over-politicized. We don't talk about it much. You can have your own private views on which party you like, which policies you like, but regardless, even those who are imperfect, and certainly our government officials are imperfect because we're imperfect. All people are imperfect. There can be a general love for people that God has given as a gift. You don't have to agree with them on everything, every point, but you can love them in a way. So we glorify God by, by loving people that God has given to be over us, even when we disagree with them, because we can see the value in what God has done in giving them to us. So I want to encourage you, especially as there's another voting cycle coming up soon, and we'll be entering another one next year and a couple years after that. Just be civil, be kind. Your hope is not in a king. Your hope is not in a president or a congress. Do what you can. Be a good civil servant, but your hope is in God. And sometimes even these secular authorities with whom you strongly disagree deserve your love in some sense. We'll move on. The fifth thing, we are to love missionally. Let's turn, please, to chapter 15. Paul ends the early portion of chapter 15, which is really wrapping up chapter 14 by by saying we are to give our liberties. We've already talked about that when we talked about loving sacrificially. But then he moves on to talk about what his plans are. He started wrapping up the letter now by this point. He's saying he's going to come to them. He's going to use the church at Rome as a base of operations to take the gospel all the way as far as he can to the western extreme of Europe, which would be Spain. But he, in these verses, is saying how much he wants to glorify God by getting the gospel as far abroad as he can, and he wants them to participate with him. Notice verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So that's what Paul's saying. God gave the gospel to the Jews and through the Jews to bless the world. And Paul says, basically, that's why I live. That's why I exist, to get this good news all around the globe. So Paul is saying to them, I'm going to take the gospel globally, but I want you to help me. Verse 20 of chapter 15, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Probably here he meant financially, as well as just basic encouragement. So basically what Paul is saying here is, you're a recipient of God's grace. Now you should take your resources and use them for the good of others missionally. I remember as a kid, basically every sermon that I listened to, in one way or another, emphasized the need to share the good news with people. To the point that I think, I think maybe it got a, a little bit legalistic. So sometimes I would hear sermons that would end with this kind of appeal. If you, if you don't go share the gospel with people, 
then their blood is on your hands. This always happened whenever the missionaries came through. Our church supported a lot of missionaries. It was great. And so, you know, back then we didn't have, like, you know, great video projectors and all that kind of stuff. So we had slideshows, like the ones in the round trays. And, and I always loved it because, like, they would preach short. And as a kid, I kind of liked that, you know. They'd preach short, and they'd show their slideshow. And the slideshow was their plea for money. So, so they would start off, and there'd usually be a picture of, of dad and mom. And I was kind of in a conservative church, and so it was always, like, mom in a really long dress and dad in an awesome three-piece suit and, like, a big wide tie because it was the 80s and, and like, 11 kids and, you know, there's a picture of them next to their big passenger van, and, and here they are, like, on their farm somewhere where they grow, like, you know, organic beets, and Jesus has called them out of beet farming to, like, go to Papua New Guinea, which is great. I'm being a little facetious here, but so it's great, you know, they're giving their lives up, and then, and then they show pictures of a couple survey trips they've taken to Papua New Guinea, and, and they show the poor heathen, like, in loincloths, and and, you know, like living in huts and all that kind of stuff. And, and then they tell you how hard it's going to be. Like they're going to get dysentery and malaria and all this kind of stuff. But what they need from you is your money and your prayer. And, and they would always say, like, you know, if you can't give money, please pray. That's just as important. And I assume they meant that, but it never felt like they really meant it. And then it would always end, especially like toward the end of the 80s or early 90s, when Steve Green, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know who Steve Green is. Steve Green, he was like the original CCM star. Um, he, he wrote the song, People Need the Lord. Raise your hand if you know People Need the Lord. You missed out if you didn't grow up in this era. So Steve would sing, People Need the Lord. Right? If you became a Christian later in life, you totally missed out, and I'll, I'll forward you like an iTunes link so you can listen to the song. And Steve would sing this, and, and, then, and then it would swell to like the chorus, and, and then the, the slideshow would end, and there's the family again, the former beet farmers, by their, by their van, and then you know, they'd flash their name up, hot sign, I don't know how they did on their slide, and, and then you were supposed to like, you know, listen to him at the end, and he'd give this big appeal, and then he'd everybody bow their heads, close their eyes, no one looking around, I think they teach you that in seminary, and, and then everybody stands up, and you sing, have thine own way, Lord, and, and then you stream down to the front, because you're promising you will never fail to share the gospel with anybody ever again. Again, I'm being a little facetious, but I felt like that all the time, and I always felt so guilty when I didn't share the gospel. I think sometimes as a response to the legalism of all that, that is to say, if you don't share the gospel every single moment of your life, you're not a good Christian and their blood will be on your hands, which is very unbiblical, by the way, um, that, that we kind of run away from that sometimes. But I wonder sometimes if we run too far away from it. That is to say, we don't emphasize it enough because we're afraid of being legalists. You don't emphasize reading your Bible enough or praying enough or giving enough and the box in the back because we're afraid of being legalistic. We're afraid of hurting your feelings. And maybe we do this with evangelism too. But isn't it interesting, as Paul wraps up, he's saying, here are my plans, I want you to know them, but he includes them in the plan. And here's the basic message. You've been rescued by grace that you might display grace, so give your resources. So we do this by giving money to Kenya and Dubai and local ministries. You do this by intentionally engaging people around you who don't have the gospel, who have no hope. I think in one way or another, at the risk of sounding legalistic today, at the risk of making you feel a little bit guilty, in one way or another, you should have someone all the time that you're seeking intentionally to get the gospel to. You're praying for them. You're engaging them. So I just ask you very simply, are you doing that? Is there somebody in your mind right now that the Spirit would bring to mind that you know you've got to get the gospel to? They have no hope if you don't get it to them. 
Will you? Will you pray for them? Will you love them enough to run to them? Will you love them enough to be embarrassed? To have awkward tension in your relationship? Jesus was willing to be shamed, to be despised and rejected, to give us grace. That's what loving missionally is. It's giving our stuff up. Our pride, our money, time. We learn to love missionally, and I hope that that is the very fabric of who we are over time. That our church collectively is made up by people who love to get the gospel to those who need it. And lastly, I think that we do this. We glorify God by loving, thankfully. We took our time through the final verses of the letter, which often you just skip over because Paul just mentions a bunch of names and says, greet them and say this to them and I'm thankful for them. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's slowing down before he ends and he's singling out people by showing that he's thankful for them. We have to learn to love thankfully. This means noticing other people. It means recognizing that you're not really the center of the universe around which everything revolves. Because we are so narcissistic, I think this gives us some reason to understand why we're not thankful. Perhaps to put it really simple. Really simply. The reason why we're not very thankful is because we think about ourselves too much. This is critical in your marriage. If you're like me and you're like my wife, we struggle in our marriage sometimes. We're not perfect. One of the main reasons for that is because we fail to be thankful for each other. We notice each other's flaws because we live so closely to each other. We know how the other person fails. We know how they don't please us. We know who we would like them to be. We, we, we like an idealized version of them but we fail to be thankful for who they are. We're we're like this with our kids. We're often frustrated with our kids. We often snap at them because we're not thankful for the good we see in them. We don't tell them. One of the reasons we're not thankful for our friends, because Paul's speaking here in chapter 16 about relationships in the church. One of the reasons that we're not thankful for our friends is because we want them to notice us. We notice all their flaws because we're puffing ourselves up and comparing ourselves against them, but but what we need to be doing is setting aside our own prerogatives, our, our own incessant desire to be made much of and to make much of other people for God's glory. I said to you as we went through that section, and you can go back again and look at your notes or listen to the sermons online, Paul's really specific in these verses. So here's my challenge to you. I'd love to see about 100% of you writing this down on your palm or in your Blackberry or your Galaxy Note or whatever you've got with you today. Find some way today or in the next seven days to encourage someone verbally. Maybe it'll be your spouse. could be your kids. could be someone around you. In fact, maybe you should do it in all those categories. Do it by a note. Notes are so powerful. In, in a digital age like ours where we email and text, it's great. It's encouraging to get those notes. It's encouraging to get those texts. But there's nothing more encouraging than than going to your mailbox and pulling an envelope out of the mail where you can keep a letter or a note and stick it on your desk somewhere or in your drawer somewhere and pull it out from time to time and be encouraged. Those don't come very often. So 
So I want to say to you that maybe one of the best ways you can worship God this week, the one who loved you vertically, is by going out and buying some stationery, or if you're really cheap, you know, go get like a you know, spiral ring binder and just rip it out, and, and write a note to somebody. Write it to your spouse. Write it to your kids. Write it to each other. And then keep it going. You want to know, you want to know what will help us in this church stay unified whenever trials come, and they will come. They have come, they will come. As if you are consistent affirmers. And I want to say this to you as well. <clears throat> Some of you think, well, that's just not me. I'm not very verbal. Like, it's not, it's not my love gift to, to be a words of affirmation person. Um, get over it. Do you realize that basically what this is, is, is a huge compendium of affirmations? People who, who have a distorted view of Scripture see this as a bunch of arbitrary, disconnected thoughts. That's not what this is. This is a huge storybook which has one driving force and intention to show the eternal Almighty's love for His people when they didn't deserve it. And this book affirms it again and again and again. That's the fabric of the story of human history. So you don't get away with saying, well, that's not me. I'm not an affirmer. My dad wasn't an affirmer. You have a father who is. He affirms you all the time. So learn to affirm. That'll help you get your eyes off yourself a bit. It'll help you love other people and lift them up. And so when trials do come, you can make it through. Because the, 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 the fabric, the, the tensile strength of your relationships can, can withstand those pressures and those trials. So we glorify God by resting in His grace. And we glorify God by sharing His grace. That's, that's Romans. Now, it's more complex than that, which is why we took three years to get through it. Right? But that's the basic message. God loved us. We should love other people. So I encourage you today, rest in God's grace. You do that by reading Romans 1-11. through So do it periodically. Make it your goal once a year to just get through Romans 1-11 through and, and rest in His love for you. Just be affirmed. Just don't think about what you need to do for Him. Just, just hear from Him. And then as you read chapters 12 through 16, be reminded of how you're to respond by loving other people. So in a moment, we're going to gather around the table. The table displays to us God's love. It's a free gift. One of the reasons that we come forward to receive it is because it's free. And I want you to come by faith and receive it today. But if you think about it, not only do we have communion with God, we have communion with one another, which is why we're having a potluck afterward. So that's vertical love. And then you will love each other horizontally by spending time with each other afterward. I won't think ill of you if you have to go. So this is like one big thing. Like the potluck's not like a disjointed part of what we're doing today. It's, it's, it's really part of what we're doing. And then take time to volitionally love this week. Be intentional about it. Be passionate about it. Be relentless in your love. So if I can end with one thought, it's really that. Grace is, a, is pursuing love. And by that I mean God's love is, is a kind of pursuing love. God's love is characterized by pursuit. Follow me? Therefore, your love should be a pursuing love. Your love should be characterized by pursuit all the time, pouring out sacrificially love on other people. So are you resting in a pursuing love today? I call you to do that one more time. And are you pursuing others in love? I call you to do that one more time.